Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. Jen Geigel Johnson is a North Texas mother of six. She has been married to her husband, Dustin, for 25 years, and she is also a full-time author. She has published more than 40 titles, primarily Regency-era historical romance novels, and she has plenty of ideas for more books. In this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, we'll talk with Jen about how she became an author, the power of a story, what role her faith plays in her writing, and how she strives to balance the various aspects of her life as a wife, a mother, an author, and more. Jen, welcome to our podcast. I am so happy to be here. I'm actually kind of honored, a little bit fangirling, because I like your podcast, so it's really fun for me to be finally on it. Well, thank you. Very glad to have you. Let's start out by getting to know you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I we've been living in Texas for about 18 years. We're working on 18 years, so I'm a true Lone Star fan myself. We've raised all our children here, moved here when the oldest was second grade. So we've been here all that time, living in the same house in the same town, and we love it and see no end in sight. So we've Before that, though, I moved around a lot. And so every now and then I have to rearrange a room or I start just going a little bit crazy. (laughs) Like this is too much the same. So that's the only complaint I have is my adventurous spirit needs to needs a new adventure every now and then. But other than that, we're just happy to be here in Texas. And maybe that's why I write books. You know, I'm I it's it's my change of pace, perhaps. Well, tell us a little bit about your family. I have six children. Um, My husband, Dustin, and I met um, at college at BYU and very shortly after followed his journey to law school in Virginia, where we had three of our children. And we've had the other three here in Texas. So we have Texans, which I don't know if you know this, but when you have a Texan, you get a letter from the governor that says, congratulations, you just had a Texan. (laughs) So we have a few of those letters. And um, my oldest two daughters are married and they have met wonderful men. We're thrilled. They got married this past summer, actually. And then my third oldest is our son who is on a mission and he is serving in Kenya, but he's temporarily reassigned there because his call was to Ethiopia. And we're just waiting for civil unrest and the, you know, for world peace. Can we get some world peace? I don't know. (laughs) That's what we're waiting for, for him. And then my Next son is a senior this year, so I've got a graduating senior and then two more at home. I will only have two children at my house starting next year, and that, for me, is very different. Well, that's great. Well, what a wonderful family, raising them in a great place. As a writer, how did you know that's something you wanted to do? Is that Have you always wanted to be an author? Yes, I wanted to write. And I didn't know exactly that would look like. Would that be as a writer? Would that be as a blogger or a nonfiction um, article journalist? Or what would it look like? But I just remember, even from a very young age, that I would communicate or understand my own thoughts better when I wrote them down. So I journaled a lot and I would write sometimes stories, but a lot of times more journaling or more just thoughts, like not even a organized essay, but just kind of a dump of thoughts. And I think that's how my mind processes. 
And so that's just, I think, a similarity between a lot of author friends that I have and myself that we tend to communicate better with our fingers. So we're typing now, but back then it was writing. I do remember, though, in high school, winning a couple awards for things that I had thought were very simple. And I liked to write them and I was excited to write them. And then I was so shocked that that someone else liked my writing, that it actually worked and helped someone besides just me. And then I thought, oh, this is a fun thing to happen. And I think that spurred a small desire in me to share my writing. But um, with that in mind, I majored in English at, at BYU and I hoped to gain some kind of expertise there. And they had an excellent education, but I left still, still not really knowing how to go about actually writing. And I would do some blogging and some I put together actually a whole book on motherhood. It was just my way of processing my life that probably no one will ever see said book on motherhood, but it was <laughs> I wrote it nonetheless and um, noticed this about myself. But um, it wasn't until much later that I actually started on, down an actual publishing path where many people would were to see my books and my things. So that publishing path, I know that's an elusive thing for a lot of would-be authors, what did you do to find that path and eventually become published? It's a very tender story for me, actually. I, I feel like it's one that I just counted as one of the miracles in my life. So to understand why that's true, I'll just give you a tiny backstory. I won't try to laboriously explain the point, but I had sort of put aside my writing as my children started to come fast and furiously. So I had six pretty quickly. And a lot of times women can handle that. You know, they have all their kids and they can find the time to write. And I just wasn't going about it in the best way I felt. And as I watched myself say, just a minute, just a minute, so many times I realized that something had to give and someone needed to raise the kids, whether it was like a nanny with invisible money, you know, or if it was myself and I preferred myself. So I set aside a lot of these little writing projects I kept attempting to do. And I would journal still, but all of the ways to get my writing out there were put on hold. And I was, I, I did that with a little bit of sorrow, but I was okay. I had so many things going on that I just sort of got wrapped up in family life and the joy and, and all of the work of, of being a mother. And I did that for years and years until I really forgot I had this dream. And what my favorite part of this story is that I had an opportunity to write a play and it's a long story. I don't know how interested you are, but there's a beautiful theater in Hearst, Texas. Anyone who, who wants to see theater in the round um, put on by local performers, go to Artisan Center Theater. But I happened to be serving on their board because my kids were involved in the theater. It's what you do. And they needed someone to write a play. And it was just to take a book and put it into play form. But through that process and, you know, seeing my characters on stage and the fictionalization of story, I like felt that passion again. And it was right about the time my son was starting kindergarten. And so it was like, this is what I say. And I feel this really deeply that I had forgotten my dream. I had forgotten how much joy that writing was integrally part of who I am. But I mean, our God, Heavenly Father did not forget. And he helped me achieve this goal and dream that I had had when I was young. And it was a beautiful moment as I realized I have time. I have this passion back. I didn't know if I had any skill. I probably didn't. But, you know, you get better as you try. 
And then um, I went to a writing conference and this is what I advise everyone to do is to go to a writing conference. You will learn so many things and you'll make all of the friends and connections that you would need to start on a journey of becoming a, a writer and an author. And I created a couple different critique groups here locally because you need to have other authors help critique your work. And these women are some of my dearest friends. They're lovely. And I pitched an idea to a publisher. And that's what you do. So usually you have your book written and you sit down in front of somebody and you have five minutes and they say, it's like, there's a timer, ready, go. And you pitch your idea and you have to be able to explain this 95,000 word immense project in like a couple sentence, little log line, like what's the main conflict of your story and sell it in such a way that this editor wants to buy it. Right. So I did, and this doesn't ever happen in the publishing world, but the very book I had just written was exactly what they were looking for. So there you go. I mean, it doesn't, this is just, doesn't happen. So I, I published with a small niche publisher under the arm of Deseret Book, and they work mostly in the West. And there's a few, there's one bookstore here that's affiliated with Deseret Book. I love them. And they're otherwise they, you know, they just have their places and that's where they sell my books. But it opens up things like Costco and Target and some Barnes and Nobles. And it's it's a happy little niche for me. So I just happened to write what they were looking for. And the rest is history. But that's how you do it, really. You can email. I have sent out probably 50 query letters to agents and publishers and and had been you know either ignored or told no or form lettered um, it really helps to sit face to face with someone and it helps if you know what they're looking for I just got really lucky <laughs> so I happen to have exactly the type of book that they wanted to publish right then so tell us about the kinds of books you write what would you call that genre Officially, it's historical romance or historical fiction, depending on which type of book, because I write both. And the subset kind of really niche down um, era I write in is Regency. So if you like Jane Austen, or if you've ever heard of Pride and Prejudice, she wrote contemporary books during that time period in which she lived. And so that is kind of what you can find in a Regency romance. That's what they would call it. But my book's sit slightly outside of that specific niche because I find it hard not to include a lot of the historical detail that's happening in the time period. So I set out to write my first book as a typical Regency romance, which is lovely and escapism as its finest. And the women have these gorgeous dresses and it's all about the marriage mart and it's so fun. And there are ravenous readers who love these books and I love them too. But as I was writing, these questions would come up. What are the poor doing? How come nobody talks to their servants? Why is England so much more free now? How could they abuse their people like this? And I would go on and on and on with these questions in my head. And so my story became so big. And all of my books tend to be that way, where I have the basis of what you'd expect in a Regency romance, but it's not going to be like a Pride and Prejudice. There's going to be so much more going on in the world around them. And um, the Shadow Mountain editor noticed this about me. And for that reason, I am going to start writing historical fiction with Shadow Mountain. So 
I will have a love story involved, but it won't be so much about falling in love. It'll be about staying in love. You know, the couple will be there the whole time and there's a lot more happening in the book. And I love both sides of this historical fiction um, line, um, but I'm really excited to start this new path too. Oh, that's exciting. Well, how do you come up with story ideas? I know you have published at least 40 titles at this point. Is that right? Yeah. If you count, I have a I have a pen name that writes Sweet Contemporary, but we don't need to talk about her right now. But yes, I, including her, I have over 40 titles. <laughs> so that's a lot of story ideas to come up with. Yeah, it's true. And everyone asks that. And I think they ask that to quite a few authors. We always get asked that because it seems sort of odd to come up with something out of thin air, right? But after I wrote the first book, I have had a never-ending flood of story ideas that do not stop. The, the problem is never enough story. It's always, which one should I tell? How should I tell it? What's the timing of the story? For some reason, once my brain turned on to this idea, I have had a never-ending flow of story ideas. And a lot of authors say that because we write for so many reasons. Are we writing for ourselves? Are we writing for an audience? Are we writing to sell, to sell a lot, or just to make a point? It depends on the purpose for the book, which story you choose. But there are there's a never-ending flow. I don't even know how to tell you where I get them. They come in the grocery store. A lot of it, though, is a what-if question. So it's a lot of it is what if. You know, you take something that you know and you turn it a little bit. What if X, Y, Z? And then you play with that and you can see what would happen. I don't know if you're familiar with the Scarlet Pimpernel, but there's a story of a man who escapes from England. He sneaks over to France to rescue people during the French Revolution. And I asked myself one day, what if a woman did that? And I it, that created a whole gender-bent retelling of this fun, iconic story of the Scarlet Pimpernel. So... That's what it is. A lot of that. And you just, my mind just wanders and it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I take notes. And it just sort of happens. Yeah. You must have a notebook of these ideas just because they're ongoing. I do. My phone, you know, your notes on your phone, useful, so useful. And then I'll dictate, you know, a lot if I'm driving <laughs> and then I type them into my computer. I have like an open word document that I just add more things to and it's full. But a lot of times, too, I have learned to hone my ideas into specific directions for I will know, you know, a year or two ahead of my upcoming project deadlines. So I can hone ideas that fit into specific assignments or projects or contracts. So that helps, too. I'm sort of dictated now a little bit more how I have to use these ideas. So I think the flow is maybe not so wide and more pointed and focused. So you have these ideas and... I guess at this point in your career, you're working with a publisher that's giving you deadlines and asking you to, to do things by certain dates. So it, it's not just free flowing on your own time, but you are marching to a schedule, it sounds like. Yes, very much. And sometimes it's self-imposed, but a lot of times it's, yeah, it, they're just deadlines set by publishing agreements or contracts and things. And so what does that look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you setting aside several hours a day to write? How does that work? Um, yes. So I have discovered that I really like to work and I have to limit my hours working. So that sounds so funny, I'm sure, to most people. But I have to tell myself to stop because I would just go and go and go. 
but I think really when you add up the hours, I'm a full-time author. So I spend about 40 hours a week doing this. That includes the marketing. It's a business that I'm running as well as just writing and creating books. So I spend quite a bit of time on that. Um, but if I were to just break down the writing, I like to do it first thing in the morning when I'm fresh. So I, I get the kids off and I should work out, but instead I'm drawn to my story. And so I start right away on whatever book I'm writing and I do some writing and I have discovered I have a talent to type fast. I don't know. I mean, I, do, I don't know why, but it's a very useful talent because I can type almost as fast as I can think. So I get quite a lot of words in in the morning. And I set a word goal. A lot of authors do this who have reached a certain point in publishing. They just need, they know how many words they need to write a day in order to meet a deadline. So I have a word count goal of about 3000 to 5,000 words a day. And I can do that before noon. Usually if I do 5,000 though, it stretches into when the kids get home around three. So that's like kind of what I do. And then of course I'm, I do so many other things. I can't strictly stick to this schedule. So I will have, you know, different appointments and different things that I do with friends or for my family or kids always forget something from school. So I'm driving back or volunteering or whatever it might be. But I, my day looks a lot like get up, sit down, write as soon as you can, because I love it and stop reluctantly when I have to do all the other things that my day requires. Tell us a little bit about the power of a story. Oh, good question. Such a good question. Oh, I'm so passionate about this. So I've read a lot of different books about this and I've listened to speakers there um, talk about it. It's, it's a very much discussed topic, the power of fiction, particularly, but even nonfiction story, it frames us as humans. So if you think about even the cavemen and things, and they have their cave drawings and whatnot, we think what's different between us and animals or other forms of life is that we're able to predict a future and think about the past. And if you think about that, that means we're not acting in the moment all the time. And what that accounts to really is story. And we, what our brain does is it accumulates all the information around us all the time. And we are always trying to figure out the end. It, we're trying to figure out what happens next. We're trying to read people and understand the next thing. And that is story. So what this means really is our brains pick up on the slightest hint of a story. If we think it's leading somewhere, our brain's there. We're like, okay, now what's the next step? And we're guessing, we're trying to figure it out and we're learning from story. And so we're wired to learn from the stories that we input in our brain, whether we're viewing them on a day-to-day -day basis and the people around us, or whether we're reading them or watching them on television or even hearing them in song. It is the most gripping and powerful thing that, uh, that we cling to and gravitate towards and like hook onto, we latch onto these stories. It's just innate in us. And so you can understand why the scriptures have story why the Savior taught in story. You can understand why when you hear someone's story, you love them because you are creating in your brain a connection with them. You're understanding where they came from and where they're going. You're predicting their future. But the empathy that's that grows from a story is powerful and beautiful. And there's so many examples of this. You can, you've heard of Stephen R. Covey's story in his book where he's on the subway and the kids are going crazy around him and there's this dad sitting across the way and he's not even take, paying attention to his kids and 
you know, the, the inclination is to judge him and wish he would do something about these crazy children. And then he starts talking to the man and he realizes that this passenger has come from the funeral of his wife and that he's doing the best he can. And you just all of a sudden knowing his story changes everything about that scene. And that's what books do. And that's what story does. And if you can never, let's say, go visit a foreign country or never know what it feels like to live in a certain type of family, you can read a book about it and experience it vicariously. And your brain understands it as if it's happening to you. You are building their story and you're creating an opinion and a thought. You're changing because of something you heard or experienced in a story. I could go on and on. I will not. I'm trying really hard not to keep going, but this is a powerful medium and we learn from our stories, whether we try not to or not, whether we think it's just a quick show or a fun book, every story we input, our brain is starts processing and we learn. And they've done studies too. Like we experiment in like a virtual reality mode in with human interaction in a story. We will see what happens if a person says this and then we watch, oh, how did that come across? And our brain looks at it like it's real. Even though we say, oh, it's just fiction. That would never really happen. You have to physically reprogram yourself to understand that what you just experienced in a book is not real life. If you ask somebody how well they know Harry Potter, they will tell you they know him better than most of their neighbors. They know Harry Potter better than like, even a distant cousin. We do not see inside people's minds and hearts and desires the way a character in a book is shown. You see why, you see the, the worry, you see the angst, you see everything. They're bare to you. And your real people are not open like that to you. And your mind thinks this is real, even though, you know, we know physically that there are no wands and Harry Potter doesn't really exist, but we know him and we feel things about characters in books. So I'm pretty passionate about it. And I take my role seriously as an author, understanding that when a reader opens one of my books, they are demonstrating trust in where they will go in my story, what they will experience. And when they close those pages, what kind of person are they after having read the story? And I take this very, very seriously. I look at it as almost like a calling, even though I know my calling is to have fun with readers and to take them places that are enjoyable and to end on a happy ever after. I still feel very strongly that this is an important role I play. And I kind of vowed early on never to abuse my readers. If that's a harsh word, I don't mean to say that, but to to take them safe places and return them whole. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it, but I do see the power of story and I take that very seriously. It's it's awesome. Well, and I know you're also passionate about producing clean and wholesome entertainment through your writing as well. True. I have learned this works great for marketing purposes as well as my own moral compass. But I've learned that people are attracted to light. And we know um, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the font of light is our Savior. He is light and he is truth. And people are attracted to this light, no matter what religion or no matter who they are or what they know or don't know about God, light is fascinating and people are drawn to it. And I feel passionately that um, the entertainment we choose to bring into our lives and and that we choose to consume and that I choose to create 
should be clean. They call clean and wholesome is a word that Amazon created as a category of books, but it works so well to be clean and wholesome, meaning that it's something that would uplift and hopefully because it adds light to the world, bring a person closer to their savior. Even if he's not mentioned, even if it's not a Christian book, even if it has nothing to do with anything spiritual at all, the light that it carries should bring somebody a more hopeful and happier path. So that's kind of how I feel. I think there are a lot of um, options out there, especially in the romance market. And I wanted to make sure that my books could be picked up by my daughter, that my grandma could read them, that there would be nothing in them that I would feel was leading someone on a path of unhappiness. And unhappiness comes in lots of forms. And so I, I don't have, I'm not going to place a judgment call on what that means for every reader, but I really wanted to make sure that, that the kisses were wholesome. I mean, that the approach to a relationship was viewed in a godlike way. I believe that the relationship between a man and a woman, when they become one as husband and wife is very sacred and holy. And I think the path to get there is also sacred and holy. And I view even the kisses and the dating and the early fun as a part of that journey. And I feel like sharing that perspective of that relationship is valuable in our day-to-day world. I don't know, especially that teenagers get a lot of that conversation. They might, people shy away from kissing or they might shy away from the topic at all, or they might present it in a way that leads to a darker path and an unholy use of those awesome gifts. And so I feel like these little sweet love stories, it contribute to that language and that journey. And I'm pretty proud of that too. I love it. I get a lot of funny questions sometimes. Someone told me once I was the, oh, I don't know, some famous author, the LDS version of this big famous romance author. And I was like, "Uh, and then they asked me like, "Is, is your husband your inspiration? Like all the time. And I'm like, well, let's not even go there really. This is totally separate. Fiction. <laughs> from, yes, fiction. It is fiction. But yes, thank you for asking that as well, because that's something I also feel very passionately about. I think it's important. Well, I'm interested to know about how your testimony of the gospel influences what you do as a writer. And you've just spoken about that to some degree. Are there other things that you feel that your testimony impacts in your writing? I think it's foundational to who I am. And when I think about a testimony of the gospel, I'm thinking about my relationship with God and my membership in a church, I believe that he directs and and guides. So I feel like you can't separate the essence of who I am, which is created and made up of this relationship with God and my understanding of living a gospel life, living a life that Christ would want us to live, my poor attempts to be somewhat more like him, right? I don't think you can separate that from who I am. And writers, when they write, have a, they have a voice. It's called, it's called your voice, your author voice. And it is like a thumbprint on your writing. And no matter what genre you're writing and no matter what you try to do, You can write very differently, but you will still always have this little thumbprint of your voice and experts in literature can find it and pinpoint it. And the longer you write, the stronger your voice becomes and it's a part of who you are. So I look at that thumbprint of who I am as something that's weaved throughout all of my stories that I could never take out. Even if I don't intentionally put faith filled stories in there. My characters are acting in faith. They're doing things and responding in ways that I imagine a person would. And I could never 
step outside of my author voice, I don't think it's possible to do that. But my testimony also influences me in the idea that I hope to be Christ's servant, his disciple. I hope that, you know, when I sit down to do whatever writing that I do, that I do it in his name and um, with his approval. And I think when that happens, you can't help but write things that influence people for good. And I say that imperfectly. I could never claim that he helped author any of my stuff. I just claim to live in a way that, that where I'm trying really hard to be aware and to be his disciple and to do what I think he would want me to do with my, with my talent that he really gave me. I just feel like he gifted this opportunity to me. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's where I went. <laughs> oh, that's great. You said you're a full-time author. You're spending 40 hours a week doing this and you're still a wife and a mother and you have church mm -hmm. callings and ministering assignments and other things going on. What is your secret, if you don't mind sharing a secret, to balancing all of this? Oh boy, it is not a secret and nor is it especially expert. I um, <laughs> fail all the time. I fail every day at this exact thing. But um I have priorities. Um, when it comes down to it, I have priorities and they are my, my family and my husband and my, my ministering sisters and my ward callings and all of those things. That being said, all of those people function very well without me. So I've noticed that I am not, you know, necessary 24 hours a day in any of their lives. And that is kind of freeing and nice. I've also noticed that even if some of the things I would hope to get done in a day, like, for example, have a perfectly cleaned house or, you know, have created the perfect school, I don't know what, Valentine box to collect Valentines with or, you know, to to have made the absolutely best gourmet breakfast, you know, for my kids as, as they run off to school. Even if those things suffer, I feel very passionately that the Lord wants me to write books. And so it's, you have to fight a little bit of mom guilt. Um, whenever you do something as a mother that you feel is just for you, um, because you are so happy to serve and love and help everyone in your family before yourself. That just is kind of a mom thing. And it doesn't mean we're all like self-sacrificial or even more great than anybody else, but it just means that it's how we're made and we're happy if they're happy and whatever we can do to keep the, the world happy, then we're just basically happy as well. So you fight a little mom guilt when something has to slide a little bit because you need to write X, Y, Z, you have a deadline. So um, this happens during crunch times for me. Like for example, two days ago, I got back my edits. When you get your edits back, usually it's like, Hey, can you work on this? We need it back in two weeks. That's a tiny window, depending on how many edits you have. And sometimes it's a big rewrite of multiple chapters and it requires many hours in the day. And there's a quick turnaround deadline. So sometimes when that happens, you say, Hey, we need to get takeout or can you make pancakes tonight? Or how about some cereal for you? And you just kind of understand that God wants you to do this too. And this is important. And it's a part of your plan. And even if you know, the kids don't get like whatever dinner they wanted, which by the way, is usually chicken nuggets. And how hard is that? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> if their most favorite meal in the world is chicken nuggets. Okay, perfect. That was just a joke. So I know, but anyway, so how do I balance it? I do prioritize. I do set up these word count goals. Um, I do very carefully manage what I take on because I've learned 
over these years of writing since 2017 till now, I've learned kind of what I'm capable of and what's going to push me over the top stress-wise. And I'm carefully monitoring my health and my ability. So I don't take on more than I think I can reasonably manage. But I also have learned that it's okay if I have a deadline and, you know, oldest child A can step up a little bit and help mom with deadline or husband can help. And he's so, so good about everything in this relationship and encourages me to go to writing conferences and to then come back. And he encourages me if I say, oh, I have a deadline, he's on it right away and jumps in and helps where he needs to. I was really blessed with like gold medal husband helper guy. (laughs) I love my husband. So I just, I don't know if I'm answering the question very well, but I do, I schedule carefully. I set my goals reasonably and I, I do give myself a lot of grace and I empower myself to understand that what I'm doing matters and it matters a lot to Heavenly Father and to myself and it's a calling as well as everything else. And I do think that ends up being a good example to my children and they're proud of me and it's fun to see that. But it's a balance and I'll probably struggle with it forever. Um, People sometimes make comments that are hurtful and it's like, how do you do all this? And they don't mean it in a nice way. Or you're so busy all the time. Do you ever see your children? And I don't know where they think they they know anything about how I'm with my children because they're not here day to day. And oh, and also you can multitask a lot of writing, writing things. So if we're all sitting down doing homework, I'm there with my laptop. I'm sitting next to them. We're all doing homework. Only my homework is writing my book or my marketing or whatever. And um, works out really well. And they have a lot of fun. And they're good at saying, Mom, you've been on that computer too long and come play XYZ with us. Because sometimes my work creeps into the night hours and they're like, they will pull me away. And I will. And it's good because my brain gets so fascinated with the story. I will forget where I am. And they'll just pull me back and I'll say, oh, yeah, of course, and close the laptop and run out and play whatever they're playing. I'm lucky they're older. They do. I mean, it doesn't mean I have less to do, but they don't need me to play on the floor with them. They would think I was weird. (laughs) So (laughs) it's nice that they have many things to do also along with me. So we're all kind of busy. While your career is unique, it's not such a unique circumstance where you have other responsibilities. And so I think there's a lot in what you just said that a lot of us can learn from, mothers and fathers, in terms of striking a balance and being there for your family, prioritizing properly. And so that's all really helpful advice. I hope so. I remember my husband, when he got called to be a bishop, someone just told him, you're, you're going to know you're doing a good job if you feel like you're slightly behind in everything. I was like, that sounds terrible. But really, I think that's just the reality. And I think it's okay to give ourselves a little bit of grace and say, that's okay. Nothing has to be perfect. None none of this has to be perfect. And so anyway, that was a funny little quip I heard. And I thought that that's true. Well, we've had a wonderful conversation. We've yet to mention a single title of any of your books or where our listeners might be able to find your books if they'd like to find those, what would you tell us about those things? Thank you for asking that question. I would love for people to find my books. You can find them all on Amazon. If you were to look up my name, Jen Geigel Johnson, and I chose my maiden name in there because I'm the only Geigel in the entire Jen Geigel Johnson world. So if you just look up Jen Geigel Johnson, you can you can just do a Google search and that will be me. My email is Jen Geigel Johnson, my website, my Amazon. 
Um, also, I am on Desert Book. And if you have the Bookshelf app, it's a very handy tool. You can read most of my Covenant books, my Desert Book books for free on there and listen to them for free. And we still get paid for that. So that's an awesome tool. I actually self-publish books. You can find them on Kindle Unlimited, which is a similar thing to Desert Bookshelf app. Yeah, that would be the best way is just a simple search. And um, even if you misspell my maiden name, I'm still going to come up. It's the best thing. <laughs> so yeah, just look up my name and you can find my my latest book, my latest covenant book. So the Desert Book book I, made, I wrote is called Song of Salzburg. And I have another one coming in August, but this one is special because for some reason it's really connecting with the musically minded of us and they feel they've read it two or three times one after the other back to back and they're sending me these heartfelt responses to this book that surprised me i had no idea the impact the book would have so if you are into the arts and feel passionate about music or even about following your dreams this book has been really resonating. It's fun. It's a, a called it's a romance on the Orient Express novel. So it's about a couple that meets on a train that travels across Europe. How cool is that? But it's it tends to resonate with a lot of people that value the arts. So there you go. There's my plug. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. It has been great to visit with you and we appreciate your willingness to share your insight and your experiences with us as we are impressed with all that you've been able to accomplish with your writing. So thank you for taking this time to be with us on this episode. I so appreciate the time and I hope to bring to light many more people in our area and that we can share and be with each other and cheer each other on in all efforts to bring people to light, right? I love that. Thank you for all that you do and for having me. I feel like a humble tiny piece of the great work that you're doing. Our guest on this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices has been author Jen Geigel Johnson. While I am amazed by Jen's ability to come up with endless story ideas, I'm equally impressed with her approach to balance her life and prioritize time with her family. To learn more about Jen, visit her website, jengeigeljohnson.com. Geigel is spelled G-E-I-G-L-E or find her on Facebook or Instagram by searching for author Jen Geigel Johnson. Thank you for listening. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.